Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and media, entertainment, disruption, all different kinds of things. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, doing this one solo as we get towards the end of the summer of 2019 when we are recording this. Uh, my co-host Tom Richardson is off doing some summer things as we wrap up heading into the semester. And since it is roughly 90 degrees outside, we're going to talk about hockey a little bit. Um, but we're also going to talk about media, where media is today. Uh, and we we're lucky enough to have a not a program alum, but a Columbia alum who has spent a lot of time in the media and on the sports side, on the business side as well. So Jillian Kammerer, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for taking me home to Columbia. It's good to be back. Yep. Got okay. So why don't you tell us, um, we're going to get into kind of the, the unique place that you've been crisscrossing Russia and China with hockey over the last year. Um, but before that, you've got a pretty interesting background in media, and you started here, like I said, as an undergrad at Columbia. So why don't you kind of walk us through where, how you got up to the last year, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So normally I would say that my career started on Wall Street as a journalist, but I think it would be safer to say it started 10, 11 years before that, because when I was a kid, my parents used to take me to The Spectator to watch the Philadelphia Flyers play. And short of actually playing in the NHL, which I realized pretty early on was not going to be a possibility, I wanted to figure out a way to get as close to the ice as possible. I just fell so in love with the sport, the stories, the community, everything around it. And I wound up writing letters when I was 9 or 10 to Columbia, or Columbia, yeah, I wish, uh, to Comcast Sportsnet asking for an opportunity to audition for their on-air team. Wow. Um, And so Jim Jackson and Steve Coates, who are both still affiliated with the organization, took the time to call me and to root me on, even though I was so young, and they basically said, come back in 20 years, which is sort of exactly what I did. So I grew up wanting to be a sports journalist. And and you grew up in Jersey. I grew up in Jersey, right. yes, just outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I, I wanted it badly. I would take home the media guide and study all the, the stats, like the nerd that I am. So maybe it's no surprise that I wound up on Wall Street, but came to Columbia and studied economics, and as I looked out across the professional landscape, I wasn't 100% certain that I could get a well-paying enough job in sports starting out to just go to work there straight out of graduation. And I think programs like the one you have here have changed the way that grads look at the landscape for jobs, but at the time, I didn't have a lot of female sports journalism role models even to model my career off of. Mm -hmm. So I had an economics degree from Columbia, sort of the Wall Street feeder, and I went on, I did my master's, and then I went straight to hedge fund. Where'd you get your master's? At the London School of Economics. Wow, so already you're kind of globetrotting with very low-profile schools. Never heard of them. Right, right. (laughs) Well, my two goals were to work in sports and to do something international, and I didn't get to combine those until later, but it was something that I always had a dual focus on. So Mm -hmm. when I got back from London, I went to work as a hedge fund reporter, and even though I wasn't in sports, it just so happened happens that some of those hedgies own some pretty high-profile sports teams. So where was that? Uh, that was at Institutional Investor Magazine. Okay. And a few years after I started there, I wound up getting scouted to move to broadcast, so I went to Asset TV, which is a financial news and research network. It's broadcast on the Bloomberg Terminal, but it's also uh, able to be accessed YouTube-style for investors. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, they knew that I had this passion for sports. I had done some freelance, and they said to me, If you want to start your own sports business show, if it's interesting to our viewers on top of your regularly scheduled programming, let's give it a try. And that's actually how I met you, Joe. Right. Tennis. Tennis, that's right. World Team Tennis. Yes. And you got me that great interview with, um, I got Patrick McEnroe, Mm. Caroline Wozniacki. It was an awesome awesome Mm. start to Sportfolio. And that was two years ago, correct? Or two or three years ago? I think three years ago. So that was 2015, I would say. Yes, 15, 16. And Sportfolio was the name of the show. It was the name of the show. It was Correct. a branding that was borrowed from Bloomberg, which had dropped their sports right, business. Right, which Ricaro used to host. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we did some really interesting stuff there, talking to the investors, the agents, the athletes, and then I wound up going to Rio 2016, and you really helped me staff up a cool schedule there with a lot of the top sponsors. And we attacked sports from the commercial side in as many ways as we could, but For me, the passion was that 10% of sports reporting that I was doing and not necessarily the 90% of financial reporting. Mm -hmm. And when Asset TV eventually dropped that sports programming, I realized I had to make a change quick because I had been living for a 10% that no longer existed. Did, um, do you know why they dropped it? Was it advertising based? Did they tell you? 
Comstock TV was a largely subscription-based model, and I think we've learned as we see the rise and fall of new forms of media that mm. if you have a subscription base, they're usually coming to you for a very specific thing. And the people that were coming to Asset TV were looking for due diligence on investments. And even though this content might have been interesting, it might have been interesting to other people who were not native to the platform, more so than it was to the financial advisors looking for a new mutual fund. So I think that's probably what drew people away from it. And if we had gone on to a commercial strategy, for that sports programming, I think it could have been successful, but it wasn't the main driver of the business. And so anything more lifestyle related wound up getting dropped. And mm. we had some cool programs that we, we were working on. We were going to the World Economic Forum in Davos. I led their coverage there twice. And they let me do an interview with the city minister who was in charge of procuring investment for the World Cup. His name is Sergei Chiriomen based in Moscow. So we still did bits and pieces, but not the dedicated effort that we had been, which is why I felt that I had to make a change. Right. So you're, you're obviously you have a massive background in business and finance that's been parlayed into sport. Sport is obviously a very big global property, uh, largely based with money, obviously. Um, so you, you're now, so that program goes away and you suddenly get this other kind of unique opportunity, which was what? So I have a really bizarre side interest in my, my hockey love, which is Soviet and Russian hockey. So from when I was a kid. So we're talking niche. There's a niche. Royal niche. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So. If, if sports business wasn't niche enough, we're right. going Soviet hockey now. Right. So it's, I, like, it's funny. I, used, I met a woman one, and I can't remember what her name was. She said she was an agent for football players, but she only represented punters. I'm like, that's a really small group. So this is not that small, but it's kind of <laughs> along those lines. So. Yeah, it's, it's pretty out there. And this is 2017, correct? This, when I applied for the program, yeah. was late 2017, early, or actually late 2018. Mm. No, the program was 2018 to 19, so 2017. Right. right, okay. And so... I was looking for opportunities. I had this niche interest in, in Russian and Soviet hockey. I'd always wanted to come back to hockey. And I happened to come across, I was actually sitting on the steps of Columbia's campus, just reading one afternoon. And as I was browsing through, looking at some new jobs, this opportunity popped up for the Alpha Fellowship, which is given to a handful of Americans every year to live and work in Russia. Now, most of these people have had Russian language experience. I hadn't, uh, they take people from all across different industries so a lot of energy law business etc and I thought to myself okay I want to make a change I don't necessarily want to take a side step or a backward step because it's going to be difficult to switch beats within New York so how can I continue to do what I love to do and not have to backtrack and this idea came to mind that if I applied for this fellowship I could make the case to the fellowship board that with Russia hosting the World Cup it was a really interesting time to be covering sports there. So mm -hmm. on one hand, I could cover the business and investment side of the World Cup, which I understood from covering the Olympics and global sporting events and how they're executed. And then I was going to try to hustle my way into the KHL, which was a no guarantee, but I thought it's worth a try. How were there flyers who were Russian when you were growing up who had some profound impact on you? Did you follow the the red army team when they play how did how did you kind of happen upon russian hockey i would say two points the first is there was a ukrainian hockey player named ruslan fedotenko who played for the flyers who debuted the day i debuted as a fan so i always felt this connection to him and as i began to try to understand how he had made it over to the u.s I started to uncover the history of the Russian Five at the Detroit Red Wings in 1994, which was a mm -hmm. few years before I admittedly stepped into becoming a fan. You had the first four Russians engraved on the Stanley Cup with the New York Rangers. And the more I dug, the more fascinated I became, not so much with where they came from. And of course, the Russian culture and history became interesting to me too eventually. But really, it was their creativity because they were so dazzling and so different on the ice. I mean, I spoke with Alexei Kovalev a couple months ago, and we were talking about guys like Sergei Fyodorov, who whenever they stepped on the ice, you couldn't take your eyes off of them. And that was something so unique to the Russian system, that creativity that's not so prized in modern hockey and maybe doesn't even have a place given the speed and physicality. But I began to really study these Russian hockey players that mm -hmm. were in the NHL, and then I started reading. I got um, Anatoly Tarasov's book. He was the architect of Soviet sure. hockey. I had to buy it used for about $200 on eBay. My parents were furious. In English? It was in English? English? Wow. That's why it was so expensive, because I think right. no one was reading it but me. 
So I wound up buying that and reading about sort of the unconventional training methods. I mean, he had these guys marching through streams, carrying each other on their backs. Like, it was just absolutely bizarre, but it worked. And so the more I dug, the more obsessed I became, and it's something that didn't leave me. So as I applied for this fellowship, I knew that I was making a good case on the sports business side, but I also thought, you know, there's a really interesting lesson we might be able to take from the KHL, which is something admittedly no one in the NHL seems to be worried about, but the KHL is growing and it's expanding and it's getting more solid. And the talent that they're attracting on the coaching and player side is only indicative of that. And that's why I think it matters. And that's the case that I put forward when I applied. So there was a, um, a big push with the KHL, which is the Continental Hockey League for people who don't know, largely Russian-based, but also, as we're going to discuss, in other countries as well. Um, there was a big push amongst the owners probably four or five years ago, and then there was the famous plane crash um, and a lot of the kind of negative side of, of travel and other things, which you can talk about the time zones and the other issues, came about. Um, and then obviously a lot of the political situations didn't help it as well with U.S.-Russia relations and how that played out. But uh, the KHL was becoming a much bigger deal, and then it seemed to have slacked off, and then suddenly you walk into this untold bit of storytelling about the KHL. Um, so what was the reaction when you, you send your stuff in? How long did it take to get a response, and what was the response that you got back? From the fellowship? Yeah. So I applied in, let's say, November, December. In January, I got the phone call that I had to fly to London for an interview. Their U.S. interviews took place. On, on your own dime? On, uh, actually, we shared the cost. Originally, I, I could have interviewed in New York, but it was during the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I was leading that coverage for Asset TV. Mm-hmm. So I came home from Davos. A week later, I flew to London for 24 hours because I had to pull it off like a vacation day mm-hmm. to interview for this this fellowship. And the, the actual interview itself was probably one of the most intense interview experiences I've ever been in. And I think... Part of the reason is that a lot of journalists are attracted to Russia because it's a sexy place to work as a journalist in the political sphere. And they need to weed out the journalists who are only there because they're interested in going to the next hot story. So Mm. they drilled me. They had me naming my desired interviewees, uh, correspondents in Russia that I admired. And I had to really make the case for why someone who doesn't speak Russian could go there and do it. And I had to rely on just saying, I've been resilient in the past. Look at what I've done. I can get on the ground and I can make it happen. And... I was very lucky that they chose me. They only chose a handful of people from the U.S. and no other journalists. And Mm. I think some of that might be indicative of the political situation. Um, And this year, I've heard that that's changed a bit, but they brought me onto the program. So in February, I found out I was going. By April, I had left Asset TV to study Russian full-time. So this is April 2018. 2018. And then I landed in Russia the day that the World Cup kicked off. My cab driver was watching the Russia-Saudi Arabia home opener on his dashboard while we were driving back from the airport. Wow. Um, what did you have to do to prep for the interview? I'm curious. We have a lot of people always listen about how you prepare for big interviews. That was a big interview, and you were coming at it a very unconventional way. What were some of the things you did to prep? And did you talk about hockey while you were there, or was it just kind of bigger picture stuff? We didn't talk a ton about hockey itself. I more made the case that it was an interesting time to be covering Russian sports more broadly, and I tried to tap into the fact that Russia, especially from the government side, is investing in, quote-unquote, restoring the glory of Russian sport, their words, not mine. Slava Fetisov, the famed Soviet Mm -hmm. defenseman who played in the U.S., is now in the Duma. He was literally appointed for that position to help uh, President Vladimir Putin restore some of the, the lost glory in Russian sport. And so you have this big focus of the Russian government on sports. So I said, why aren't there any journalists over there covering it? And truth be told, there really aren't, at least from the North American side. So I had my why down really, really solidly. And I knew that I was going to have to explain to them my motivations. So I tried to keep it personal and succinct. And I would say that's what I focused on going into the interview. I think whenever you're taking on a project that's maybe a little out of your purview or a little different than what you've done before, those interviews are harder. So you just have to own what it is that the the central motivation is. And I had done a lot of homework on who else was operating there and how they were operating there, because that's the real complication. People think they'll fly to Moscow and have doors fly open for them. That's simply not true. Mm -hmm. So you get there, the World Cup has started, you're watching it on a dashboard with a cab driver. (laughs) And what happens at that point? So I landed, as the World Cup kicked off, uh, I had the fortuitous meeting with the director of competitions for FIFA,
uh, on a freelance story I was working on, he wound up inviting me to a lot of the games in Moscow, including the final. I was in the front, low, front row of Luzhniki when Russia beat Spain on penalties, which is to date probably the greatest sporting event I've ever witnessed. Um, I thought the stadium was going to fall down. So it was just an amazing summer getting to do some freelance stories and then working on my Russian language skills because truly you have to have at least some to be able to get by day to day. Mm. My first day I went to the grocery store. I couldn't read any of the labels. I went home and cried for about two hours. So it's one of those things. What did you, what did you buy? I bought one yogurt. No peanut butter? No, I couldn't find it. Wow. My, my mom actually mailed me some and then I found it the week she mailed it to me. Mm. So sorry mom about okay. that. But I... Uh, I went ahead and, and just kind of focused in on the Russian language, but I had to find a way to get into the KHL quick. And I knew that the teams weren't speaking English for the most part mm. in the locker room. So I started cold calling every person I could find on LinkedIn, which was not so simple because LinkedIn is banned in Russia. So you had to find the people <laughs> that were using their VPNs to get around it. So I found a couple of journalists. I sent them targeted emails. I actually wrote them both in Russian and in English and said, here I am, I'm on a fellowship, which means you don't have to pay me. I will work on any project you're doing at the KHL, and I don't care what it is or even if you want me to get coffee, just bring me in. And I was lucky enough that a Match TV uh, producer, a guy named Nikita Berezhkov, Match TV is kind of like the ESPN equivalent, mm -hmm. messaged me back and he said, I don't have anything for you because you're not a Russian speaker, but let's keep in touch. I was maybe 24 hours from accepting a job as a political correspondent at Deutsche Welle, and I'd been networking for months and couldn't get in. When I get this message, basically in the middle of the night, from Nikita saying, hey, I have this friend Vladimir. He's working for a team in China. I know that sounds bizarre. But it's always a guy named Vladimir. Why is that? Always. So, so. Or <laughs> Sergei. power in Russia yeah, is so. related to a Vladimir. So. Um, so he and you were by the way you were living in Russia at uh, you were living in Moscow at the time correct living in Moscow at the time just sending out these cold calls yep. the KHL officially through their official channels wouldn't take a meeting with me why why do you know probably language barrier related most of their English language programming or writing is being done or outsourced so there was no one person I could attack and say hey you're running all the English language work got it come get me um, so I wound up being connected with Vladimir Maximov who was a cameraman at the KHL that worked his way up the ranks and wound up becoming a lot more involved in the media strategy side for the launch of a new team. And the team was called Kunlun Red Star. It's the KHL's first team in China. It was created at the behest of Hanadi Timchenko, who's the KHL's chairman. He owns something called the Volga Group, which is a big investor in energy, infrastructure, and transport. He was doing business with a Chinese billionaire named Billing Gok, who runs something called China Environmental Energy Holdings. He was doing projects in Russia, and Timchenko you, you have notes on this whole thing, right? I mean, because there's a book here that's going to... It's too bad Tom Clancy here. passed away, because right. there's some kind of book here, but go ahead. <laughs> so we've got, the, we've got the Russian oligarch, the Chinese owner yeah. of an expansion team in hockey. Yes. Okay. So Timchenko, at, at Timchenko's behest, Bill and Gok invests in Kunlun Red Star, and the catch is that Russia is... Dolph Lundgren is going to walk into this at some point, somewhere, <laughs> so go ahead. So the, the catch is that Russia is going to help China train up a national hockey team ahead of 2022 when Beijing hosts the Winter Olympics because the last thing China wants is Japan or Korea beating them in men's ice hockey. So maybe it's not the gold medal that's something that we're aiming for, but it's going to be besting neighbors at least. But for those who don't know, hockey, it's hockey, basketball, and gymnastics that I think are the three sports that China has earmarked as the must play or the must get better at. So you exactly. you walked into a situation that was politically charged, but in a positive way for you, I would imagine. Absolutely. And politically charged doesn't, is not even the half of it. So often we thrust political meetings, especially onto hockey, like the Lake Placid miracle on ice. I mean, those players were playing for themselves, but we threw communism versus democracy on it as the media and as fans. When the uh, KHL directors accepted Kunlin's application in June of 2016, who was sitting there at the ceremony? President Xi Jinping and President Vladimir Putin. So it's not just that there's a metaphor being thrust here. They wanted it to be there. And it's it's obvious that these two countries are turning toward one another, right? Because Russia's being kind of blockaded economically and politically from the West. China is having its trade tensions with the U.S. It makes sense that these two countries are turning more toward each other, and Kunlun's a great metaphor for that. So just so everybody knows, what's the distance miles and time-wise from where you were in Moscow to where you ended up in China? Oh about, let's see, Moscow to China is probably a seven-hour time difference approximately, and you could be from 10 to 13 hours separate from any one team in the KHL at any given time, because the KHL plays in Belarus, Latvia, Finland, Kazakhstan, and now 
China. So if you're sitting in Belarus and you're on your, let's say, latest away trip, you could be as far as Beijing. And most of those teams don't take the time to actually transition because once they get to China, they're going to play within 24 hours. So they stay on Belarusian or Russian time the best that they can. Putin doesn't have that because they have to fly over to the West and they go on extended road trips where they're gone for two weeks. So they have that hit of transition at the beginning of their road trip. Their legs are giving out at the end of it, and then they have to go home and transition quickly enough to host their first home game. So it's an absolutely, I would call it an almost insurmountable feat to be able to play healthily throughout the KHL season. So the NHL West Coast trips have nothing on this. So the flight from Moscow to China was how long for you? About, so depending on whether they were playing in Shanghai or Beijing, about 10 hours approximately or a little more. 10 hours? Yes. That's in the air. And don't forget that this team is flying a charter flight on Ural Airlines. They legally cannot fly that in, in its entirety, so they have to stop and refuel in Siberia, which means they're going up, coming down, and then going back up again. So try to get a full night's sleep on that. Did you ever get off of the plane in Siberia? Uh, I personally did not. I was not with them there, but I remember looking at pictures where it was minus 40 and they were landing in Novosibirsk, but I was with them in Sergei of Posad, which is basically the, the Vatican of the Russian Orthodox Church where they had their, their training camp, or I was with them in St. Petersburg in the middle of winter, so I saw some interesting uh, bits and pieces of their Russia trips, but some of their further out ones, like in Khabarovsk and otherwise, those, those time differences were unbelievable mm. to witness. So... You now make the trip. You're in China. What are you doing? So when I was hired for Kunlun, I was hired initially as a host, and I began my... For TV. For, let's say, digital platform and broadcasting. And we did a little bit, uh, a couple of projects that probably wound up on KHL TV, which is sort of the equivalent of NHL Network. Um, And by the way, were you speaking English, Russian, or Chinese, or, or Mandarin at that point? That entire uh, locker room is an entirely English-speaking locker room. It's coached by Kurt Frazier, formerly of the Dallas Stars, and Alexei Kovalev of the 94 New York Rangers making his coaching debut. All the players generally have to speak English, and there are very few Chinese-born Chinese players on this team. There are a few. Um, one of them is Rudy Ying. His father's the Chinese Steven Spielberg, but he speaks fluent English. We had a goaltender, Alex Lazushin, who spoke fluent Russian, uh, and only a little bit of English, but goaltending's a little different. You can kind of get away with that. So everyone in that locker room is speaking English. So I arrive with them. Um, The first time I meet them, we're in Russia together. I interview the GM in the locker room, and I interview the players after the game. And we're essentially trying to create a library of content that introduces North American and European fans to Kunlun because the Russian market is locked up. It's going to take a while for Chinese fans to catch on, and they have their own dedicated marketing team. But a lot of the guys playing in this locker room, Brandon Yip, formerly of Boston, Victor Bartley, formerly of Nashville, these great NHL coaches on the bench, it's of interest to North American fans. They want to know where these guys wound up. And especially for Chinese Americans who are maybe looking for more Chinese role models in sport, there's some really interesting ones that are sitting in that locker room who may be naturalized in time to compete Hmm. for 2022 for China. So with the NHL stars stepping away, who as a hockey fan are you going to follow at the Olympics? you're going to be following some of these ex-NHL guys potentially who are playing for China. So there was a really interesting opportunity to grow a content strategy that's English English speaking obviously but North America and Europe centric. So that's the, their goal was to create content for for English speaking in North America which is where you came in. Exactly. Um, take us through a day around the team. What was the arena like? Uh, by the way, when these guys signed with the KHL, did they know they were going to China, or did they think they were going to end up in Moscow or St. Petersburg? A lot of them deliberately came for this project, so they knew what they were getting into, but I asked a few of them, when you were seven years old, dreaming about playing professionally, did you ever imagine you'd be in Beiyang Ice Center in Shanghai or in Beijing, and they could have never dreamt it? Neither could, could I, neither, I was going to say, neither could you. I mean, my gosh, so. when I was seven or eight, imagining being a hockey reporter, I don't think my imagination went further than Conshohocken. Like, I was yeah. all Philadelphia Flyers all the time, and then here I am in, in Beijing and mm. God knows where else. So, so what was a day like? Typical day, I mean, my favorite was in Shanghai. So the team plays in Beijing, that's their home, but they were in exile of sorts in Shanghai while they were readying the arena because they're in an arena that's going to be used for the Olympics, so that was still under construction. So when we were in Shanghai, I remember pulling up to the stadium for the first time, kind of walking toward it, and there was the team bus and then about 20 people, 20 elderly people standing in the middle of the parking lot 
swords, tassels, music playing, doing a full Tai Chi routine as the players are walking by with their Beats by Dre headphones on. And it just Which had nothing to do with the hockey team. They just happened to be in the park. Nothing, now. although I hope that they were directing good energy their way at that point because the yeah. team was really going through a, t- a tough spot. So I was watching them do this in the parking lot in front of the team bus, so automatically the juxtaposition's outrageous. And then you go in, and the team is practicing. So usually when the team is practicing, I would start writing our three keys to success video. So since a lot of fans were not necessarily aware of the KHL, its culture, its main players, I always tried to do a preview video before a game that gave them some ideas of, of what to expect. And I worked with Vladimir Maximov, who was a native of the KHL closely, and we would do things like the fact that the Fetisov Arena in, um, in Vladivostok is much smaller than the average arena in the KHL, so you have to be worried about ricochets from the corners that you may not necessarily... But the ice about. is physically smaller. Exactly. Wow. Because they play on Olympic-sized ice in the K, mm. and the Fetisov just happens to be smaller. So as a goaltender, you have to be a little more spatially aware from the corners. Um, or we talk a little bit about the culture of the teams and who they were facing, or the stars, because some of those stars may not necessarily be familiar to your average North American fan. Mm. Uh, so we did a preview video, the team would practice, usually I'd chat with the coach to see what would be coming up or who the lineup would be for the next for the game, hopefully that night. And then I would go ahead, go home, we would edit that video, post it, and then we would start to get ready for the game itself. Sometimes we did uh, interviews around the game itself, so we talked to Rudy Yang's father the night that Rudy scored the first goal he had for the KHL, and Rudy Yang's father is very prominent in China. He's basically the Steven Spielberg, so it was very interesting to have one of those father-son stories in the K that you don't often get here told. Um, or we would interview the players after the game. We did long forms with the coaches, Alexei Kovalev, how did he wind up on the 94 Rangers to China, for mm-hmm. example. And we did specials. We did a, a series called A Day in the Life where we helped you to see what it would be like to play for a Chinese hockey team in the Russian Hockey League. And, and any element we could to introduce fans to the really unique experience. So where did the video live? The video largely lived on Kunlun's social channels, YouTube. Instagram became a really big deal for us. Um, a lot of KHL teams have Russian language. Instagram's functioning, Kunlun's is English, and we were able to do more for Instagram TV, which was kind of making its debut as we were working on video for them. Uh, and then we also did a little bit more um, that I think could be messaged on KHL TV, so that way we could incorporate some of the Russian fans into our programming. Kunlun sort of treated like this outcast by the Russian Hockey League, Russian media sometimes, and we were trying to at least get some more eyes on what was going on in a positive light because they were having a rough season, and inevitably a lot of the Russian coverage was negative. Do you have any idea how many people actually watched, whether it was live or taped? And where it would like, were there actually people in Boston or New York sitting there watching this live on a laptop somewhere in, you know, probably in the middle of the afternoon, I would think it would be, right? When we did our, our Instagram push, I can give you a season-long perspective. Sure. We went from approximately 300 to 400 Instagram likes to over 12,000 by the end of oh, the wow. season. So it was an enormous growth in the audience from having a targeted There's a whole strategy. world going on out there, Tom Cerny, that we don't know anything no, about, please. which is great. So <laughs> keep going. So that... That in and of itself speaks volumes, but in terms of the types of comments we were getting, we had a lot of people who were in North America asking where to buy merchandise. Well, that was going to be my next question is where's the merch? So. And it's, it's, not, it's unfortunately not yet available to the fans who are asking for it. Even in Europe, it's quite hard to get your hands on a Kunlun jersey or any KHL jersey if you're not close to the physical arena. So there's a merchandising strategy to be had there that I think they need to really start to work up as we get closer to 2022. Mm-hmm. So um, people are watching this all over the world, following it on Instagram. Um, players who people in the U.S. know... What about the Chinese side? Did people come? Did they understand what they were watching? Did they come and, you know, you hear these legendary stories of, you know, a PA announcer saying, you may now clap. (laughs) Um, And on the other side of that, from a social standpoint, a lot of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the platforms that you talked about are not allowed in China. So how did you kind of overcome that? So this team inevitably has to run concurrent media strategies, one for China and one for, let's call it, rest of world. So was there, there was a Jillian China doing the same thing as you were doing this? There was not, um, but there was a team that was dedicated to posting on platforms that were relevant to Chinese fans, so looking mm. at things like TikTok and Weibo, and a yeah. lot of the videos, and, and this was something that I really... 
wished we'd worked harder on in season that I hope will continue kind of long after this one, which is we didn't collaborate enough because there were some interesting places where we could put Chinese subtitles on interviews and make them relevant to Chinese fans. Mm -hmm. And I think that increasingly you'll see that happening, but there was a team that was specifically talking to the Chinese audience where they live on the internet. Right. Um, so it's it was a little different in that respect. Um, I'm trying what to was the arena? It. What was the arena atmosphere like? So arena atmosphere, <laughs> tough question. So Kunlun was playing in Shanghai because their arena was under construction in Beijing. There is a bit of a and just so, so people, by the way, so people don't know how far apart are Beijing and, and Shanghai. Uh, they are a couple hours by high speed train, so it's basically a flight if you're not going that way. So it'd be like the Flyers playing in Boston. Yeah, it, okay. it's it's a sizable difference. Okay. So the team. Is brand new, right? So they only signed their charter in 2016. They're in this exile season in Shanghai. The Shanghai arena was not outfitted the way you would expect a traditional arena to be outfitted. And admittedly, their their viewership was next to none. They had maybe a hundred, a couple hundred people wow. per game, and, and that was on a good night. And it's because they weren't being marketed there. The team fundamentally has this Beijing identity, and there's a bit of a sensitivity there between Beijing and Shanghai. So we had to be very careful about how we marketed and messaged that the team was in Shanghai. Interestingly enough, now that they're in Beijing, the Shanghai fans that were there who became really dedicated are, you know, completely trolling left, right, and center saying, you know, why'd you leave? How could you do that to us? How are we going to watch, etc." So the fans that were there, it was small but mighty. Um, and then when we went to Beijing into Shaogang Arena, the capacity was a couple thousand and they did pack it out on really? the two nights that they hosted at the end of the season. So I think what Kunlun's pressure is going to be right now is they hosted the end of their season in Beijing um, this past season. They didn't make the playoffs, but we can't make it like the circus comes to town, right? Because you have a two-night hockey special, let's call it. Of course you're going to get fans. It's easy to draw attention. How do you continue to fill that arena night after night? Now, there's a big celebration of the anniversary of um, the, the Chinese People's Republic being formed this year, so they actually can't play the beginning of their season in Beijing. They're playing it in Shenzhen, but that's an interesting opportunity for them because there are a lot of expats in Hong Kong and Shenzhen who are from Canada that might be interested to watch. And I just saw this really hilarious video of um, a children's game between Hong Kong and Shenzhen where an all-out brawl broke out, the likes of which you wouldn't even see in the NHL, mm. and I thought, okay, so that's pretty serious. There's some enforcers down there. Um. When you look at uh, the over, oh, by, by the way, was this the only KHL team in China? Yes. And it will continue to be the only KHL team in China, correct? It's likely to remain the only KHL team For in now. China. And I think there's a big question of what happens when 2022 comes to pass. And there is no professional league in China. There, you can play hockey in China, and Kunlun Red Star uh, was formulated even slightly before the KHL. They wound up signing onto the charter, but it was formulated with this in mind. There are opportunities to play, and Kunlin's fundamental in creating those. They're creating a youth system right now, for example, and Wayne Gretzky's their global ambassador. Of course. Of course. I mean, who else? Right. And his name is on these, these arenas in the outskirts of Beijing. I've been to the youth development camps there. Um, so there are opportunities, but Kunlin's the real only big-time opportunity. And it's just boys in the development, or is it boys and girls? No, and Kunlin has a fantastic women's team that's suffering from the breakdown of the women's hockey league. In fact, Bill and Gok in the hockey news was celebrated for being a proponent of the women's game. Nora Rati is a Finnish goaltender. She's largely believed to be the best women's hockey goaltender in the world is a Kunlin Red Star Dragon. So it's So when you say breakdown of the league, there is no longer a women's professional league in China. Or you meant in they the were, Canadian they, No, they were playing over in North America. They so so competing. you meant the Canadian Can, CWHL exactly, and the NWHL. Okay. Exactly. So Bill and has been a big proponent of promoting the women's game and, and Kunlin had a fantastic women's mm. team. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there eventually. Ownership. Tell us about the ownership. Did you interact with the ownership at all? Were they involved? And how big was the front office? So the owner, here's what's interesting about Kunlin. You have a couple different factions, and understandably nationally this would be the case. So you have legacy KHL people. Um, you have uh, essentially more on the back office staff servicing the team that are focused on the KHL, the chief press officer, um, has been involved in the KHL for a long time. I mean, they understand through and through the logistics and exactly how to navigate league regulations. Then you have a North American who's now sitting at the helm, and his name is Scott McPherson, and he's been involved in, in hockey diplomacy and development for a this long time. This is at the time. KHL, at the league, this or is, the no, team? No, this is within the team. Okay. So, and, and Scott is very close with Bill Ngoc, who's the owner of Kunlun Red Star, and I mentioned he's the billionaire that was mm -hmm. involved in, in energy projects with Timchenko. So... 
Scott McPherson sitting at the helm, he's a sort of recent addition. The GM previously was Redis Pilsetniks. He's a, a Latvian GM who uh, was really fundamental in starting to build the team, but he was quite young, and this is a really daunting project, and this team has had a rebuild virtually every season since it started. So when he, when he was removed from his position, they brought in Scott McPherson, who has a really fundamental understanding of international hockey. He was even fundamental in the creation of the KHL. So he's now sitting at, at the helm, and he's doing a really amazing job of attracting talent and eyes. I mean, one other thing to note is that Jake Chelios will be playing for Quinlan Red Star next season, the son of Chris Chelios. Hmm. So he's attracting guys who may have had opportunities in the U.S. that they forewent to come and play for Quinlan. Um, in terms of interaction with Phil and Gok, the, the founder, he's... Uh, present when they're playing in Beijing, but you have to remember they were playing in Shanghai a great deal. He does actually get into the locker room and talk to the guys at the end of the season, especially when they were struggling. Speak English? Uh, does he speak involved. English? Uh, I believe he speaks, uh, yes, he does speak English. And I didn't have any personal one-on-one -on -one interactions with him, but he and Scott McPherson have been business partners and friends for a long time. And the two of them now, I think, have established a system where, you know, Kuhnlin may start to formulate into a team that will last past one season versus, you know, versus the rebuild, 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 which is the hope anyway ahead of 22. Do, um, do you have any kind of feel for what the cost of a KHL team in China is? Like, I mean, we've seen recently um, Joe Tai now buying the rest of the Brooklyn Nets allegedly for the largest price ever, several billion dollars, hasn't been finalized yet. If I wanted to go and buy a KHL team in China, what do you think it would cost me? I don't even know. You couldn't do it, obviously, but if you could. I don't even know if I could estimate it. And the reason is that they don't, for example, mm. they don't have salary disclosures in the KHL. Mm. There was a big leak last season from uh, Yekaterinburg often will be leased. It was a team that had gone undefeated for a long stretch at the beginning of the season. And you had foreign players on that squad making in the millions. Um, it's rumored that Wojtek Walski of Kuhnland Red Star is making in the millions. He was a Canadian Olympian, won the bronze medal. Um, so he's, you can see that there are some players on that team who are making not NHL comparable salaries to Alexander Ovechkin, but who are making salaries comparable to what they would have made had they tried to, to duke it out in the NHL. Most of them are just past the peak of their careers, maybe were put on waivers that are playing in the K. Um, Cody Franson's a good example of that. He plays for Avangard Omsk under Bob Hartley, of course, a famed NHL coach. He was put on waivers with the Blackhawks after an injury that kind of questioned his position on the team. And he went over to the K because that's where the financial security was. And I'm mm. sure a couple of years ago, you couldn't even imagine that being the case. Did you go to any other cities for games or did you stay pretty much homebound? No, I was, I was sort of all over the place and I covered other uh, players and other coaches because I was also writing for Sport Express, which is Russia's sports newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, I think the most interesting one right now is Avangard Omsk. So Omsk is a city in Siberia. Avangard is majority controlled by Gazprom. About a year ago, it was decided that Avangard Stadium, donated to them by Roman Abramovich, um, who he owns a couple of other things. You might, yeah, you might recognize the name. Donated to them and his great hockey philanthropy. That stadium was deemed to be unfit to play in, so they were moved to Balashika, which is a suburb of Moscow, approximately forty minutes by Uber if you're not stuck in playoff game traffic, which I've been many times. Russian Uber, season. there you go. So, so you get to the stadium, and when I first went in September, October, it was obviously a repurposed stadium. Everything was kind of a step below what you would see for the Seyaskas and Spartaks of Moscow, the really big time teams. By the end of the season, there was Gazprom logos everywhere, G-Drive, which is one of their, their in-house brands. There were new in-arena experiences behind the hockey team. And if you had been there in September, it would be almost unbelievable, the transformation. And it just so happens that Avangard Omsk makes it to the Gagarin Cup Finals, coached by Bob Hartley. Now, do you really mean to tell me, after all this investment in this stadium, with a lot of Gazprom's top brass that loves hockey sitting in Moscow, they no longer have to fly to Siberia to watch games, that Avangard is not going to move entirely to the outskirts of Moscow. I would argue it's almost impossible to imagine. Let them prove me wrong. I'm sure the fans in Omsk would be thrilled. But you see a really interesting in-stadium experience there, and one where you're seeing a brand recognize the, the beauty of the B2C play that you can have there. And that's something that I think in the KHL was not super prominent before, and it's becoming more and more obvious. I mean, even just from content perspective, I was watching uh, the KHL's feed today and yesterday, and they were in Amur, which is the region where the Amur Tigers live, and they had a baby tiger running around the locker room for the best photo op you've ever seen. Even the NHL and NBC retweeted it. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. So other people that don't follow the KHL are starting to see what the KHL is creating, and I think that that just shows you that they recognize the importance of branding and marketing in a way that they may never have before. And what about social? I mean, is there a big push for athletes and teams to engage in social? Do they have big followings? Are there teams we should, who are doing creative things that you saw that you could follow here in the States? So I would say, I mean, Kunlun Red Star continues to be really forward-thinking in this respect, and, and I mean that genuinely. They're doing a lot more in-depth get-to-know-the-players than NHL-style content creation. Um, but if you look at really any of the teams in Badis, which plays in Nur Sultan, formerly Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, that team has had a lot of... There's going to be a spelling test for this, by the way. So and Please don't involve me yeah, in that spelling yeah. test, but... You have a lot of North American guys that actually naturalized in Kazakhstan to play for the national team who are on bodies, like Brandon Bochensky, originally from the U.S., um, and they're doing a lot more because they have this sort of NHL-style management system there, so you should watch what they're doing. They're one that I always keep an eye on, um, but I couldn't believe when I was looking at this video of Habarovsk, I mean, you don't traditionally think of some of these further-flung Siberian teams as being particularly forward-thinking in the content department, but I don't really recall the last time a KHL tweet was retweeted by NBC NHL. So yeah. it's interesting. I think that you can keep an eye generally on KHL's English feed on one hand because that aggregates the best of the best, but I would take a look at what some of the individual teams are doing as well. It's getting better and better. Um, we get to the end of your, your experience there. First of all, could you have stayed, and what was it like to live there? I loved Moscow in a way that I never imagined I would have at the outset, especially after the yogurt incident in the grocery store on my first day. But you found the peanut butter, which was important. That so. I would have died if I hadn't. We wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, I'm an addict. So going, going back and looking at that time, I think I probably could have spent another five years in Moscow. And, and I think that the reason that I didn't, and I had an offer to stay, albeit it was independent of what I was doing in hockey, it was more TV-focused, um, the language barrier is nearly insurmountable for someone who just began studying when I landed there, mm. effectively. Wow. It takes approximately three years to become decently conversational in Russian. And at this point in my career, yes, I'm, I'm on the, the more the beginning of my career than the end, but I thought I'd rather focus on the opportunity than worry about being hindered by the language. So for me, it was a really difficult decision, so I ultimately left. Could I have gone back to Kunlun and been with them in China? Could I still do that? I think it's all a possibility, and I would love to be a part of that organization again. It's something that is truly unique and special and is re redefining the way we think about multinational sport and, and even mm. nationalism in the Olympic context. But you know, as you come back and you look at that opportunity, the more I discuss it with people here, the more I realize it's unique in the U.S. sporting landscape and the more doors have been opening as I've discussed it. So you, you sit here as we kind of wrap this up, You've come back, you're kind of in between jobs, but you've been kind of pitching this idea of, you know, this faraway land with a niche following that is growing in a sport that people understand that the NHL kind of follows, kind of doesn't follow, isn't on traditional, any kind of platform here, correct? correct. Not even NHL TV. Correct. Um, and you, you, you know, when you talk about building a brand, I don't want to say you're the KHL woman, KHL American woman, but you kind of are. So how do you go about leveraging that since you've been back here? What's been the response? Well, don't say that too loud because it might be confused with collusion and then I'm going to have the State Department on me. But essentially, it's really interesting. People, people don't think of the KHL the way I do now having been inside it. So the more I share it, the more I realize that there is an opportunity to tell that story to especially people who are NHL focused and don't think that there's a reason to look outside of the bounds of the NHL. I wouldn't argue that the KHL is going to become competitive for NHL mindshare. Where I do think it's going to become competitive is for some of these older guys that anchor locker rooms in the playoffs that are maybe struggling year to year with one-year contracts. They look at the KHL, they look at the growing salaries, they look at guys like Bob Hartley and Kurt Frazier and Alex Kovalev coaching and they say, I can make a million a year comfortably for a couple of years. I'm going to go there. Which and is the women's basketball argument for the WNBA. Exactly. It's exactly mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. coaching talent. The NHL's coaching talent pool is limited. Think of how you always get the same names circulating for the same jobs over and over and over again. I mean, the Philadelphia Flyers ate up three head coaches for their coaching spots this season. So if you start to lose guys like Bob Hartley or, I mean, Mike Keenan last was coaching Kuhnland Red Star before mm -hmm. UC Tapala, who was the predecessor to Frazier. Um, you get really big-name talent now coaching in the KHL. 
you don't want to keep losing that talent, especially if they're just going on a hiatus or after a tough season. So that's why I think people should care. And of course, there's the broader argument that sports is only getting more and more international. So we need to worry about what other countries are doing. It's it's not if but when that we're going to be interacting with them more on social. Hmm. And the last kind of questions are, you obviously have a global look at sport. Who do you follow? How do you stay up to date with everything you know, 20 hours away, 15 hours away. Um, how do you stay relevant with everything here? You know, what are some of the places or the sites or the things that, that, that you think people should be following? Um, and how do you keep how do you keep content uh, constant on all that stuff? I have a lot of Twitter mm-hmm. lists set up, and I specifically so follow, lists are important. Lists are super important, mm-hmm. at least for me because I follow everyone and their mother whenever I, I see someone talking about hockey. So I try to keep it somewhat organized, and I love to think about. Um, what the leagues are messaging because that's always a good indicator of how the clubs themselves are operating. I tend to find that the NHL and the KHL have become amplifiers for interesting content from their own teams. Mm -hmm. So I look at the leagues first. Then if I see a team that's doing something a little different, a little interesting, I'll keep an eye out for what they're producing. Uh, I love seeing that more and more NHL teams are developing web-based series. Uh, You can follow the players in off-season more closely that way. Um, and then I tend to follow some of the, the, the more esoteric reporters that are looking at draft prospects because I think it's not necessarily so interesting to follow the headlines day to day. I'm not a trade rumors kind of girl, so I'm not looking at who's going where and when. But I love to see where the guys that are reporting on prospects are going. I mean, if you were following ahead of the, um, the hockey world championships, where some of the NHL prospects guys were focused, it was Finland. Finland did incredibly in the junior side. They won the world championship on the men's side. Nora Rati of Kulin, she is one of the greatest goaltenders, if not the greatest goaltender in, in Russian hockey right now or in women's hockey. She's Finnish. You would have realized that there was something important going on in Finland. So I like to keep track of what the prospects are doing. And then... Um what advice, so let's go, let's go through the path again for people who may not have been listening all along. Grew up in New Jersey, hockey fan, Columbia undergrad, London School of Economics, broadcast um, coverage of financial markets, ends up in China, Russia, following hockey, a very traditional career path. Um, yeah, everyone goes to Russia and they make a career change? Um, well, it depends on who they are, I guess, <laughs> uh, or, or why they're leaving the United States. But, um, but why, um, what advice do you give for people? And, you know, you're in a little bit of a transition now, which probably by the time most people hear this, there'll be even more news. We'll talk about how people can follow you. But um, what advice do you give to people who are looking for, you know, an interesting path that they may only see? I would say this, when I applied for that program in Russia, I was sitting on the steps here at Columbia and I was reading a book called A Gentleman in Moscow. And there's this line in there about your life being steered by uncertainties, some of which are daunting. But if you have the courage, when you look back, you'll understand how it led you to where you were Recognizing that things are choosing you versus you choosing something. And I I do feel that way strongly, but I also think if you follow your passion, um, and even if um, you're a multi-passionate person, which I am, eventually a path clears and you understand it in retrospect. So you shouldn't be afraid to take the opportunities that don't make linear sense because it's really the, the scenic route that I took that got me to where I am today and, and landed me sitting in Russia reporting on a Chinese hockey team to a North American audience. I could have never dreamt it at the outset, but when I was there, it's quite a triangle, by I the said way. it's perfect. Yeah. So I think just trust the process, trust your passions. Um, and then more importantly, most importantly, Tell us about where people can follow you and kind of this path that you're on and, you know, who knows where it's going to lead. So social handles, how do people find you? So I have a Twitter that's probably my most active social account. That's at Jillian Kemmer, Jillian with a G, K-E-M-M-E-R-E-R. Um, I also have a blog that I kept and that I continue to keep where Very I important. interviewed a lot of interesting foreigners operating in the KHL on all sides. That's the caviardiplomat.com. So like caviar, like fish eggs caviar. Caviar, like Russian gold, yes. Russian gold. Um, and that's a place where you can see some of the work. How I often do you publish. update that? I am trying to update it weekly now. When I was in Russia, I was doing so even more. Now that the KHL regular season is about to kick off, you can expect a lot more there. Wow. Um, so one more time, caviar. The caviardiplomat.com. Caviar Diplomat on Twitter, obviously. Are you on Instagram? I'm 
on Instagram. I have a locked account, but I promise I'll mm. fix it. Come follow me. I'm at Jillian K M M R R. I took the vowels out like that would disguise me. And link and LinkedIn <laughs> on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, Jillian Kemmer. Cool. What um, the last question is? I don't want to say where do you see yourself in six months or a year, but where do you, no. Um, what is kind of the next step that you're back here? Do you think you could find a media company interested in this? Can you self-finance the story of this? Uh, do you want to write about it? Uh, has there been interest from traditional media, whether it's digital or print, to, to kind of bring you on because this is something that people see as emerging? There has been interest in it for sure. And I think if you're a journalist today, one other piece of advice I would say is that you cannot limit yourself to a single platform. You have to be able to exist on all of them. Uh, I love video and I love telling the story of hockey and sports in video. So I think broadcast is a natural fit for me and I'm likely to continue to pursue opportunities to be a correspondent. I think my dream job is to be sitting on the NBC Olympics broadcast and I have an interesting background to back that up. But in addition to that, podcasting and blogging, both hugely important. And I think in both of those mediums, you get a chance to own your own story and perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Places like The Athletic are increasingly taking on unique niche reporters because at the end of the day, fans want to hear stories other than what's just being uh, recycled over and over again on traditional outlets. And so that's where I think there's the opportunity. Cool. And... um... Would you would go back if if the opportunity if the financial and and it worked out and suddenly NBC said we want to be covering the KHL regularly it's something that you would consider correct I sleep with my passport on my nightstand I'm ready to leave Tell wow me when. Um, would you do other sports by the way or just is this just a passion for hockey like if someone said could you cover women's basketball in Russia could you cover the Euro League in in basketball does it matter to you. I would cover other sports, and I have covered covered other sports from the sports perspective, or from the business perspective. Right. Excuse me. So I would say yes. Um, I have a passion and a love for hockey that I don't think is ever going to go away, and mm-hmm. it's it's sort of my first, last, and always. But soccer, for example, is really interesting because of how global it is. The NBA is interesting for the same reason. So any sport that's looking globally, I'm probably a fit for. Great, Jillian Cameron. Thanks again for joining us on the Cusp Show. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, this was the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Joe Favorito, sitting in for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We'll see you down the line.